you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as we're seeking to preach through this book. Today we find ourselves in verses 3 through 8 again, and we will cover all those verses today, Lord willing. Beginning in verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. Some translations have fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of the grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Two weeks ago we kind of looked at this and did what I call a flyover, a, a broad stroke looking at these verses and centered on one thought from verse 5. Now, you remember in verse 1, Paul opens this letter by telling us who they are and what they are. Verse 2, he sends to them a a Christ-centered, God-centered salutation and greeting. This this is a standard letter of that day. Well, the next thing usually that happens in those letters is they'll give a note of thanksgiving. And that's what he does in verses 3 through 8. He gives us his thanksgiving. So the question is, what's he thankful for? Well, primarily, according to this letter, he's thankful for their partnership, for their fellowship. And the end of verse 4 has the word that kind of sums up the theme, I think, at least a theme, a major theme in Philippians, and that is joy. When Paul thinks about this partnership, when they work together in the gospel to make Christ known, to see people come to know the Lord Jesus, and then to disciple them, he is elated. Again, this came to me this week. If you break down the Christian church into two things, all the other things kind of branch off of those, winning people to Christ and helping them to grow. That's it. Here and around the world. Now, other things come into the picture to make this happen and maturity and so on. But folks, those are the things that we should be involved in all the time. They're the non-negotiables. When Jesus was leaving this earth, He said at the end of Matthew chapter 28, all authority, verse 18, is given to me in heaven and in earth. And these are his last words. And you know, the last words of someone usually are very poignant and important. As you are going, not not literally go, that's Mark 16. As you are going, make disciples. Then baptizing them. Then teaching them. And know that I'm with you to the end of the age. You cannot fail if you are engaged in that endeavor. Despite whatever else may happen, you cannot fail. So Paul is here talking about his thankfulness for them as they share together in the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Now, on the 14th, we took time and hopefully answered the question, so what is fellowship? That's a, that's a buzzword, isn't it? It's what someone has called Christianese. You know what Christianese is? That's those words that Christians use all the time. Are you saved? That's one of them. And some other ones. 
We know what that means, but a person walking into this church for the first time, never having heard the gospel, never having read the Bible, going, say from what? I saw this one time on a men's stall in a bathroom. Someone wrote, Jesus saves. Someone else came along and put, at the First National Bank. That was their understanding of what saving was. Saving, they had no clue. So when we talk about fellowship, what do we mean? Well, too often, fellowship is relegated to food and fellowship halls and hanging out together and doing things together. And those things are good, they're important, and they're a part of it. But if you go to the New Testament, there are two key words around which we build our understanding. The first one is koinonia. You've heard that before, haven't you? The other one is metoke. And when you look at those two words in the various ways they are used, we gave to you four thoughts about what true Christian fellowship is. It is connection or relationship. It is coalition or partnership. It is camaraderie or companionship. And it is caretaking or stewardship. Those things make the summation of what it means to have fellowship together. And if those things are not happening, we're not having the full orb kind of fellowship that God has in store for his people. I heard on the way here this morning, I don't know who said it, they were talking, I was a radio station, and the lady on there was talking about something she saw this week called virtual relationships. You know, Facebook relationship. That's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? It's when you put two words together that they don't fit like living corpse. Someone teasingly said an oxymoron could be marital bliss. Don't get mad at me. And if you're in the service, military intelligence. Okay? They just don't go together. Virtual relationship? You can have 750 friends on Facebook and not have one friend. There ain't no such thing as that. You cannot have a relationship as God intends. You cannot have fellowship with other believers without these four ingredients in the pot constantly being stirred around. So, having done that flyover, that assessment this morning, what I would like to do is ask the question, so how is it flushed out? How do you see it? What is happening if these things are happening in our fellowship together as God's people? And I want to share with you from this passage of Scripture five things I think will be evident. These will be in action. These will be happening when a church and believers are having fellowship. Number one, verses three and four, Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. That's that word fellowship. The first thing I think that is evident when fellowship is present is people are regularly fervently and effectually praying one for another. Now, Paul is in prison, but as he says in 2 Timothy, even though he's in prison, his prayer life is not bound. Do you remember what he said in 2 Timothy about being in prison? He said in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But then he says at the end of that verse, but the word of God is not bound. Prayers transcend any earthly barriers that might be there. And Paul is experiencing in his imprisonment a joyful, fervent prayer life for the Philippian believers. He's not bound at all by that. 
He thought of them often. And when he did, he prayed for them. Now we'll look next time at verses 9, 10, and 11. But here's a sample of what he prays for them. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Can I ask you to, will you be honest with me this morning and yourself, how many times have I prayed that for another Christian? Lord, provide their finances. Heal their physical needs, and all of those things are good. But you'll find that this prayer here is spiritually focused for the profit of their soul and their walk with God. Paul prayed for them when he thought about them. When he thought about them, he prayed for them, and it kind of works one with the other. And the Philippians, though they were separated from him in geography, were not separated him in prayer. He's praying for them, they're praying for him, they are partnering in this prayer together. And though they may not have a prayer journal where they write things down when they prayed it, and when it was answered, God was working in both places. What about me? What about you this morning? Do you often think of your brothers and sisters in living legacy? And do those thoughts lead you to pray for them? That's the obvious question in light of this truth. Now, it could be because the Lord brings them to your mind. Or if you're like me, you need a list. I got lists all over the place. On the wall, by my chair, in my briefcase. Everywhere I go, I have a list. I have a bumper sticker. You might see it sometime. Of all the things I've lost, I miss my mind the most. I forget. I need help. But it doesn't matter. I'm thinking of brothers and sisters in Christ at Living Legacy, and as I think of them, I pray for them. And they pray for me. What a wonderful way to bond us together. And that's an evidence that we're having just true fellowship in the Lord together. By the way, I think we're in the process of updating our directory and getting an updated one for you and for me that you can carry with you. I find that very helpful to have the names right there with me and pray on a specific basis and in a specific way to remember people. And as I see their name, or perhaps picture as well if that happens, I can pray for them and they can pray for me. Scriptures both commend and command us to do this. Romans 12, 12, in that practical section of the book, after Paul has spent so many chapters in the doctrine, he says in verse 12 of Romans 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing instant in prayer. Ephesians 6.18, and by the way, I believe this is part of the armor. Remember Paul says, beginning in verse 10, to put on the whole armor of God so you can stand against the wiles of the devil. You've got the helmet of salvation. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. You've got the belt of truth. You've got the shoes of peace. You've got the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. And he says in verse 18, prayer, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Twice in that verse, he mentions the importance of prayer. And I believe that's part of the armor of the Christian, praying for all the saints. Colossians 4.2, interesting word. He says, continue steadfast or devoted. Do you remember that word devoted from Acts 2.42? What was it that the early church devoted themselves to? There were four things. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, 
and prayer meetings. The word devoted means they were steadfastly stuck to it and practiced it on a regular basis. Well, Colossians 4.2, Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Now, that does not mean everybody's supposed to quit their job, stay inside, and spend all day in prayer. The word translated without ceasing was used when somebody had a hacking cough. You know what that is? A hacking cough is something that happens, and then there was a, a break, and then they came back to it again. And what Paul is saying is without ceasing means on a regular basis, as opportunity comes to you, you should think and pray for brothers and sisters and other things that the Lord lays upon your heart. Therefore, prayer should be a frequent, common conversation between us and the Lord. And one of the primary subjects, I believe, should be my brothers and sisters in Christ at Living Legacy. Speaking to God about their walk, their needs, their burdens, their joys, and their concerns. Can I ask you and myself, do we really believe in the necessity and power of prayer? You ever heard of Samuel Chadwick? Samuel Chadwick said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, or prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. You ever heard of Mary, Queen of Scots? It is reported she said, I fear nothing but John Knox on his knees. So much did he move the power of God that that caused her, Bloody Mary, who severed many a head from a body, to fear and tremble before God. Now I'm going to ask you a question once again. Do I believe in the necessity and the power of prayer. The more we have true fellowship, the more we will pray for each other, and that will lead to, guess what? Greater joy and greater fellowship. Remember that circular thing? One feeds into the other and is the result of the other, as well as less conflict. James Montgomery Boyce, who is now with the Lord, said this, I think that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world would disappear if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly one for another. It's hard to be angry and throw out the window somebody on your knees before God praying for. So how is fellowship seen, first of all, by God's people regularly, fervently, and effectually praying for one another? Secondly, it is seen in verses 5, 7, and verse 27, along with another verse in, in Philippians. It is seen by a serving together side by side in the gospel. You know the 80-20 problem, don't you? If you don't, let me tell you what it is. 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work in the church. That's sad. And those 20%, as I've seen over the years, finally just get tired. And they say, you know what? Pfft, I've had it. I'm tired of carrying all this. And so, and I tell you what I've seen. When they get out of ministry, when they get out of their function, you won't get them back in again because they remember what it was like. Every believer has a gift. 
Every believer has a responsibility in the body of Christ to exercise that gift for the glory of God and for the good of His people, serving side by side in the gospel. It's a servant's mindset like Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where He said, the Son of Man, talking of Himself, did not come to be served, but to serve even to the point of giving His life for their sake. I quote, From day one, the Philippians joined Paul in the cause of the gospel. They were active in serving the Lord. The concept, listen carefully, the concept of being a church member who just attends a church service once a week would have been completely foreign to them, and rightly so. It should be foreign to us. Jesus Christ never saves anyone so they can just add church attendance to their list of weekly things they do. Nor does he save anyone so they can live happier lives that are just as self-centered as they were before. Every believer is saved to serve Jesus Christ and God's people and even the lost people. We are to be servants, even as our Lord. He goes on, Americans have adopted a change in focus in which they view the church like consumers who are shopping for a place that will meet their needs. So they try out this church and then that church and finally settle on one that seems to offer the services they're interested in. But if they have an unpleasant experience, or if they hear of another church that seems to offer better programs, they change to it, much like they change department stores if someone else suits their fancy. Sadly, listen, from a pastoral perspective, I know this pressure. Sadly, a lot of churches cater to this mentality. Articles and books tell pastors how to market their churches to the name it. Xers, wires, jeers, heirs, millennials, baby boomers, I don't care what it is. Gear your church to that particular group. It's called target evangelism. And they warn us that if we don't do what they want and redesign our church to give it to them, oh, we'll lose them. Nervous pastors, and I've seen this, see the people going down the street past their church to another church that offers a full-service program where they've got youth group and they've got music and they've got Awanas and they've got this and this and this. And you know, our kids need this. Please don't get me started on that this morning. You ain't got time. If you want to have a big church, build it around middle schoolers and all the fun and games you can give them. You'll explode. You'll be an inch deep and a mile wide, but you'll, you'll have a lot of people, see. So they look for this full service program and they get busy trying to design new programs to help their church compete in the marketplace. And many times it is a competition mentality. I experienced this personally. I'll not tell you the denomination. I'll not tell you the church. It was in Pennsylvania. I was a brand new pastor there. It was in a denomination. And the area church planting guy came to this church that had been around for a long time. They had gone down the tubes as far as attendance. And he was going to come in and tell us how to, how to grow again. So we're sitting around this big table, and he says, now here's what you need to do. You need to spend $500 and do a demographic study of your neighborhood. You need to get the figures on their education, their salaries, their, their family size. And by the way, how do you have two and a half kids? I'm not sure how that goes. But, but look at just demographic study and say, okay, we got a whole lot of people here between the ages of 25 and 40, with two and a half kids and their salaries are forty to sixty thousand dollars, those are the ones we're going to go after. And you you orient your whole church, every program, every service to get them. <laughs> he got done and walked out the door. I said to the church board, I said, 
you forget everything you've just heard. That's a bunch of nonsense. God didn't call us to just reach the baby boomers or the 25 to 35 or 40 year old people. He called us in this community to reach lost sinners. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what age they are. I don't care how much education they have. They're lost and without Jesus Christ. And that's our responsibility. But don't you, don't you not believe the pressure that's on pastors if they don't produce, if their church doesn't grow to a certain size and a certain time frame, they're failures. And in some denominations, every three or four years, they're transferred around because they have no choice. It's the mindset. Dear people, active, faithful, participating, contributing church member is an essential part of your sanctification and mind. You cannot grow in grace. You cannot be what God wants you to be if you don't get tagged into and laced to a congregation of believers and begin to contribute and serve and give what God's given to you together in the gospel to see people saved, to see people grow so that they can do the same thing. That's a healthy church. That's a New Testament church. Yes, the church is a blessed fellowship of the redeemed who serve Jesus, but I want to warn you of something. Be aware. Sometimes, quote, that service will include being persecuted. Paul mentioned how the Philippians were partners with him while he was in prison. They were engaged in two things, defense and confirmation of the gospel. He tells them in verse 29, look at chapter 1, verse 29. Here's a special gift, and the word gift there is the same idea as a Christmas present. The gift that God gives to us is not only to believe, but with that package is also to suffer for his sake. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you, it's been given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It is part and parcel with believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised in John's gospel, if they're going to hate me, if you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you. The servant is not greater than his master. The student is not greater than the teacher. It's a gift. I borrow this. I wish I, I wish I had this wit to say this, but one guy says, can you picture the Philippian church taking out an ad in Facebook to market their church saying this? Come, join our church. You'll love suffering with us. We have the best persecution program in town. Well, they're just going to flock at the door, aren't they? And please notice, serving side by side, that's joined at the hip spiritually. How? For what purpose? In the gospel. Making Christ known. As soon as we get out that door this morning, God is going to place us in various places. I'm going to drive 35 minutes and go down to Mechanicsburg. You're going to go to separate places. Why am I going there? Why do I live where I live? Why do I have the job that I have? So that I can represent Jesus Christ, live for Christ, and be what He wants me to be. Honestly, the best way to win people to Jesus Christ is to live a holy life. And show Jesus Christ in my actions, my attitudes, my words, my reactions. That is attractive. That's what makes Christ known. That's what he's called us to do. And the two key elements that Paul talked about here in these verses are defense and confirmation. They joined him. Now, defense is different than apologetics. 1 Peter chapter 3 says in verse 15, Always set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart. 
and be ready to give an answer. That's apologia. That's the word, apologetics. And be ready to give an answer of the hope that you have. That's different than what he says here. This is defending the gospel. That doesn't mean we go out and make idiots of ourselves and, and do stupid things, but we need to stand up when untruth, when lies are being propounded in our community or wherever we are, graciously, kindly, and lovingly. We need to say, sorry, eh, wrong answer. Some people say, well, you don't have to be so negative. Wasn't, wasn't Jesus a loving Savior? Well, let's see. At least once, possibly twice, I think, when he went into the temple. Did he walk in and say, oh, you guys, you, you shouldn't be selling those things. You're making my father's house a mockery. Would you just please go away? I'll be back later and hope that you'll leave. Is that what he did? Now, we don't act like that all the time. No, I'm not saying that. But there are times when we need to stand up and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And confirmation, what's that? Defending is with my lips. Confirmation is with my life. Put those two things together. I live and speak in such a way as to exalt Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, expose the unfruitful works of darkness. We work together. We speak. We live. We proclaim. And we seek to exalt Christ in our lives together. And what's the result? <laughs> Great joy. Remember in Acts chapter 5, after those men had been beaten, verse 41 says, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. You know John Piper, don't you? Got an article this week by John. He says, you are served when you serve others. Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? After Jesus said 5,000 and 4,000 with only a few loaves and fish, the disciples got into a boat without enough bread for themselves. They began to discuss their plight, and Jesus said, What are you discussing? The fact that you don't have any bread? Don't you perceive? Don't you understand? What didn't they understand? You know what they missed? And he goes on to develop this. They missed the message of the leftovers. After everybody else was served, bread and fish, what did they have? 5,000, there were 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. After the 4,000, there were seven. That's the number of completion. Here's the point that Jesus was making. You guys have missed the point. In serving others, you get the leftovers. You get served. God takes care of you. That's the servant's mindset, doing and knowing that God will take care of our needs. So serving side by side in the gospel is another way that true fellowship is seen. Thirdly, look at verse 6. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And what I'm saying on this point is this, that we will understand, we will submit to, and we will affirm the sovereignty of God. Now this involves promoting, practicing, and experiencing fellowship with other believers because of our joy with a confidence that God is working in them and through them no matter how it appears. So that means I can rest confidently and not get all bent out of shape when other Christians don't seem to be acting or growing or obeying as I think they should. 
It means I can trust God to work in their lives. God's the one who started their salvation, and He's going to finish the job. But fellowship often breaks down because I see another Christian not acting the way I want them to, not believing on some non-essential issue like I want them to, or not acting in a way that I think they should, and therefore I get disappointed in them, and I start to reject them. Fellowship breaks down, joy breaks down, because I think I know better than God. I'm trying to play the Holy Spirit in their life. Now, of course, of course, if a brother or sister is publicly sinning and disobeying the Scriptures, you've got to deal with that. But even then, you need to do it with a loving heart, with the goal of restoring them. My own opinion, I think we should judge less and love more. Verse 6, that verse means I am not responsible to change anybody. I'm responsible to minister the love of God in a sensitive manner. If they violate God's word, we deal with that. But at the same time, I can trust that God is going to work in their life. If they are truly His, He's going to change them. So I can relax. I can go down to sheets, buy a bag of ice, and chill out. I can encourage them in the areas where they are with the Lord. I can encourage them in their weakness, but I can also learn from them in areas where I need to grow. I am not the Holy Spirit, and neither are you. And it only serves to break fellowship when I try to take that role on myself. You know how practical this is? Husbands and wives, parents and teenagers, children and parents, God knows exactly what He's doing. God can change them. And again, what's the result? Joy. Fourthly, verse 7. We talk about grace, we preach grace, we speak about grace. Verse 7 says we actually experience grace one with another. Look what he says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. Every true member of the body of Christ is a member and partaker of God's grace. The more I grow, the more I realize I need grace. But I also need it not only for me, but I also need to be an agent or a channel of grace to other people as well. 1 Corinthians 15.10, you know that verse, don't you? I am what I am by the grace of God. Can I take a little liberty? Make it corporate. We are what we are by the grace of God. And we need that grace ministered and poured into our lives on a regular basis. And what does this do? It, it helps us to live in a manner of humility. Do we really understand how, how vicious and subtle is pride? Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Before Christ, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, bond or free. Now be careful. I don't adhere to egalitarianism. I'm trying, trying, trying to impress you. There is function in the body of Christ, but when we stand at the cross, we're all at the same. Someone pointed out to me, it's very interesting to trace chronologically how Paul referred to himself in three letters. First Corinthians, he said he was the least of the apostles. Ephesians, he said he was the least of all the saints. In First Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. As he gets older... He's like a stalk of corn. Have you ever seen a stalk of corn? Plant on the ground, it's like this. Gets the corn on it, and the older it gets, what happens to it? 
Mm. It's bending over. That's a sweet picture of Christians as they grow in grace. Over, bending over in humility before God. Read a story this week about a guy who had a person in his job. <sighs> they were cantankerous. They were always barking, never happy, blah, blah. And he had a bad attitude toward him. He was a Christian. He just thought, I don't like to be around her. I don't want to be infected by that venom. Then he stopped one day and God says, well, why don't you ask her about her life and what she's going through? So he did. Oh, my, oh, my, oh, my. He found out, as Paul Harvey used to say, about the rest of the story, about her upbringing, her childhood, her home life, her struggles. And you know what? From that day on, he had a different attitude toward her. Folks, one question we should always be asking when we see behavior that turns us off is, why? There's a reason why people act like they do. And if we will take the time to ask and investigate, we might learn something and our whole attitude might change. And we might pour grace into them rather than keeping grace from them in an act of pride. True fellowship will help us to do that as we get to know each other, as we bond together. Okay, as we eat together, that's cool. Again, it doesn't mean we tolerate sin. Sometimes we've got to deal with that. But if we remember that we're all partakers of God's undeserved favor, we will give each other room to grow. We'll be more patient. We'll be more forbearing. True Christian fellowship is just sharing together in God's abundant grace. One more thing. This is interesting to me found this this time when I was studying. Verse 8, notice what he says. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection, not toward, but the affection or love of Christ. Do you know the difference? Affection for Christ is my love for Jesus. The affection of Christ is his love for me. And it's interesting to me, very little in the Bible talks about my love for God. Most of it talks about his love for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what did Paul say? The love of Christ constrains me. Not my love for him, but the love that Christ has for me as an undeserving sinner. That constrains me, that motivates me, that moves me to do what I do. I didn't write them down, I didn't record them, I've still got them I think, but I, I just did a, a short Bible study about all the verses about the love of Christ. It's amazing. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. And the love of Christ is seen in sacrifice and service and making himself known to his people. And I tell you, in true fellowship, we will sacrifice for one another, we will serve one another, and we will make ourselves known and vulnerable one to another as the occasion arises and as we grow in grace. Result? Uh-huh. Joy. All of these five things result in great joy. Sin will divide across all kinds of lines. Racially, culturally, etc. But the love of Christ unites us, not just intellectually, but with a heartfelt love. Do you remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians? So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but our very souls, because you were dear 
to us. That's D-E-A-R to us. True fellowship will manifest itself in God's people loving in the same way, sacrificing for each other, serving one another, and letting the light of Christ shine in our relationships. So, are we experiencing true fellowship, brothers and sisters? Let me ask you a question. Do you pray for each other? That's kind of a searching question, isn't it? And while I know you don't have a, a journal as to how often and how much, in any given week, how much do I pray for my brothers and sisters? Am I serving side by side in the gospel? Do I see myself in this living legacy church as one who's come to serve and not just to get? Smorgasbord Christianity is alive and well. I'll go down the aisle. If I like this, I'll take this. No, I don't like that. We are to serve side by side in the gospel. Thirdly, we are to find out as we labor together that God is sovereign, that we are not God and it's not our responsibility to change people. Fourthly, we'll experience grace and not just talk about it. And fifthly, we'll know the love of Christ in a fresh and a new way. We must never take this fellowship for granted. It is our privilege to experience it. And folks, we got to work at it. We have our flesh. We have our sinful nature. We've got the world in which we live and all of the cultural problems that creep into the church. We got to work at it. We've got to fight for it and we've got to experience it. And the more we do, the joy that we will experience will be far greater than any struggles that we go through together. I will just say, if you're not yet fully plugged into this body, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that. It will bring greater joy in your life than you could ever experience. And one more time, as I seek to do in every message, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've never believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I didn't say, are you religious? Do you go to church? Are you doing the best you can? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you acknowledge you were lost and without help and without hope? You can't save yourself. Christ came to do that. And you've received him as your Savior. His, his substitutionary work on the cross is your only hope for heaven. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that. Listen, it's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. It will determine where you spend eternity. And when you do, when you do, you will become a part of a family who will serve you and you can serve them. You can pray for them and they can pray for you. You can love them and they will love you. You can be a companion to them and they'll be a companion to you. You will have mutual concerns and encouragements. And there it is. It's there for you today. Take it. Receive it. Receive it as from God. To as many as received it, to them he gave the authority to become the sons and daughters of God. I pray that as we go along these days and months ahead that God will really revive and strengthen and increase fellowship among God's people here at Living Legacy. It will bring great glory to his name. It'll be a testimony. It'll be a testimony. I read again this last week and I can't remember what the book was, but in the early church, the one thing that astounded people was what Jesus said. Behold, how they love one another. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love 
one for another. Someone has once said, only the Christians shoot their wounded. A Christian firing squad, a circle. Can you picture that? No, it shouldn't be that way. True fellowship will cause that not to happen, and we will grow, we will have joy, we will see God work, we'll see people converted. Let me ask you a question. Don't shake your head or raise your hand. Do you want to see people saved? Do you want to see people who are now on their way to hell, and if they die in that condition, will be separated from God for all eternity? Do you want to see them come to know Jesus, maybe in your own family, your own neighborhood, on your job? Do you want to see that? Sure you do if you're a Christian. As we practice this fellowship and work together and serve together and love together, God will bless us for His glory and for the salvation of lost people.